Hey there, welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. Now on this show, we ask big questions as we're reading through the Bible, questions pop up and we aim to discuss them here, but we also aim to discuss your questions. So if this is your first time here, my name's Corey and I'm joined by my husband, Matlock. Hey Matlock. Hello. Are you excited about this reading? I am. So yeah, because this week we read <laughs> 2 Kings 9 to 1 Chronicles 9. We did. Yes, a lot of history and that's Lots actually most of our questions throughout the next couple weeks. Yes, that's fair. Right, which is out of my wheelhouse, but hey, so be it. It's in my wheelhouse yes. though. I'm excited. I love this area of scripture. I think it's really fun. So, yeah, it's good. Uh, we're gonna be talking about um, how to handle failure as a Christian, as a believer in God. We're gonna be taking a look at Hezekiah, some weird instances of lions in the Bible. Lots, lots of good stuff. Good. Yeah, coming up. Okay, well, I'll open up then. Please, First do. opening question, okay? <laughs> yes. In relation to 2 Kings 10, <clears throat> verse 30, is there any significance of Jehu's descendants ruling to the fourth generation? Yes. Yes, actually, there is. So, um, when we're looking at the kings of... I'm just going there just in case. But um, when we're looking at the kings of northern Israel, because remember... Israel was only unified under three kings, under Saul, David, and Solomon. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, he could not successfully heal the rift that had happened during the reign of Solomon. Uh, and as a result, Israel split. So 10 tribes chose a different king to rule over them. Originally, that king was Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Um, and then Rehoboam got the tribe of Judah, which was his own tribe, and the tribe of Benjamin to back him as well. But the kings of northern Israel did not all descend from one house or one dynasty. It was pretty much ever-changing. Uh, and that's in contrast to Judah and Jerusalem, who was always... Um, ruled over by the sons and then grandsons of David. So the dynasty or the house of David. Uh, so in northern Israel, these dynasties switch all the time. And the most powerful dynasty, the most interesting dynasty, I think, from a historical perspective to look at in northern Israel was the dynasty of Omri, uh, whose son was Ahab, that infamous couple Ahab and Jezebel. Really strong, really powerful uh, dynasty in terms of human power. They were obviously very ungodly, very wicked. The Bible talks about that. So Jehu in uh, 1 Kings 10 then is this king who <clears throat> begins a new dynasty and he wipes out the family of Ahab and Jezebel. <coughs> Excuse me. Bless you. I'm getting over a little bit of a cold here. Yeah, you can probably hear it, but... <clears throat> um. As a result of Jehu's faithfulness to, to, to uh, follow God's anointing and becoming the next king of Israel, he actually has the longest reigning dynasty in northern Israel. His dynasty may have lasted until the end, except for his sin, his falling away from God, and the fact that his sons also did. But because of his faith, original faithfulness to God, God allowed him to have the longest reigning dynasty in northern Israel. So that would mm -hmm. be the significance to ruling to the fourth generation. It actually was a, a testament, a testimony to the fact that when you follow God, good things happen. So it's really interesting to see how God dealt with the northern kings of Israel because um, 
even though they fell into apostasy so easily, God still utilizes pretty much every opportunity that we, we can see recorded in scripture to show that he is a merciful God and he is willing to work even through human evil, that all they needed to do was to be faithful to God and good things would happen. Uh, but that was not to be. But anyway, yes, that would be the significance of Jehu's long dynasty there. The longest one, if not the most powerful. It was definitely the longest one in northern Israel. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to think about just the how a blessing for people in general is is for their children. So a blessing for Jehu <clears throat> is to bless his children or to, or to retain the generations. You see what I'm saying there? Yes. There's something to do with generations and blessings that I think sometimes can be a miss um in our you know in our modern context we don't often look at it like oh i'm establishing a household for my generations and children's and children's and children's and our in our culture we're really thinking about it like well i have a kids and then they're going to grow up and then i'm going to die and it's right. kind of like this more nihilistic approach to life and and you look at the bible and even the new testament where it goes you know this is a blessing for you and for your household and for your children and it's this, like, this principle that God wants to bless the generations to come yes. through faith and through good decisions. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and that's not to say that Jehu's children weren't judged based off of their own sin, because they certainly were. And, he, and Jehu himself was based off of his own sin. That's why, you know, uh, his, his kingdom did not last, be, his dynasty, sorry, did not last beyond those four generations. So there was a blessing that came with the initial promise that his children got to live in. Right. But then they as individuals had to either live up to that or fail. Right. Uh, and because there's conditional blessings as well that come with God. Yeah. So there's that, the the unconditional and the conditional blessings that come. Yes. With. It is an interesting thing to think about. Isn't yeah, it? I know. And it's also interesting. I'm not sure, I know I have a viewer question. I don't know if this is today, maybe a couple, couple of weeks from now. But uh, is it relation because it's interesting because <clears throat> you also have people even though it's, he's trying to bless the generations through you, through your through your faith, there's so many of the kids who fall away in the Old Testament. Yes. So many of them. But that's for a different question. I have a question. That's later on today. Is that today? Oh, yeah. look at that. Okay. Later on today. All right, but unrelated to this, another question. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this has to do with 2 Kings 17. Sure. Why would God send lions to punish the newly settled, settled people in Samaria for not worshiping him? So in general, right. I just don't think this seems fair. So... What's right. going on? Okay, so in 2 Kings 17, we have found ourselves at the time period of the Assyrian excursion. Like, so the, the Assyrian Empire has come in, they have defeated northern Israel, they have captured Samaria. And as a part of growing their empire, they've taken much of the citizenry of northern Israel and exiled them. So marched them to different territories that Assyria owns. And this uprooting process generally discouraged rebellions against the Assyrian Empire because now, instead of living on their own farms, growing their own vineyards, and having time to talk about the politics of the day, people were in a whole new land having to um, pick up where other people had left off working their farms, working new vineyards, learning a new a, a new land, right? And, and new environment. So they're focused on surviving rather than on being unsettled and unhappy 
with their political situation and trying to do something about it. So this was a pretty standard thing. You take one people group, you exile them, move them into a different thing. So in and around Samaria then, there was a whole bunch of newly exiled people. So Assyria moved in people who were not native Israelites into this area, and they were trying to learn how to survive. Now, what <coughs> Second Kings 17 tells us is that with these people, naturally, they brought their own religious views, their own gods, their own idols, and were worshiping them. In the ancient world, people knew, they believed that certain lands were dedicated and owned by certain gods. Certain spiritual forces oversaw lands. Now, that was one of the reasons why Israel inherited the land of Canaan in the first place, because God was claiming that land as his own. He was judging the sin of the Canaanites, and he specifically told Israel to wipe out the names of their gods from the land. So there would be literal monuments with the names of gods and high places with altars with the names of the gods written on them. And Israel's job was to clean the land of those foreign names. And Throughout the Bible, Israel is called the land of God that he has granted to Israel and Judah for them to stay on. So this, this backdrop to this, to this idea is that the land belonged to God. Israel believed that, Judah believed that, whether or not they, they lived up to that concept, we know they didn't, right? This is one of the reasons why Israel was exiled in the first place because they were also worshiping other gods. But now we've got these new people and they're only worshiping their God. So how is God going to get their attention? He decides to do it in a way that they would understand culturally. Here's what I mean by this. Lions. Lions in the time period of the Assyrian Empire specifically were associated with kings, specifically with the king of Assyria. So um, lions represented the peak the pinnacle of nature, of wildlife. And as such, they represented chaos because it was the king's job to overtake nature, civilize it so that his people could live safely in the land. So the fact that God is using lions to come in and begin mauling people is showing that the king of Assyria, he actually does not have jurisdiction over this land at all. He goes on a yearly lion hunt showing that he has control over nature. Guess what? He doesn't here. The king of Assyria does not hold sway over this territory. So it's sending a very clear, pointed cultural message. Have I explained that yeah, no, in a way sense, that makes yeah. sense? So then the people begin cry, they, they, they figure it out. They know what's going on. Oh, the God of this land is inciting the wildlife against us because he is, he is not accepting the authority of, like the, the Assyrian king does not have us worshiping this God properly. So what do they do? They get an Israelite priest to come back and teach them how to worship God. Now, of course, they don't do this properly. They worship God, sorry, they worship God properly, but they also continue worshiping their other gods. So it's not as if we have some mass conversion experience with a new Israel, but 
uh, it's interesting how God is trying to speak to these people who are, yes. are now moving into his territory. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I got nothing to add to that because that's that's pretty smart. I think it's really interesting how yeah. God chooses to speak the language of the people. So is it brutal? Yes, but it makes sense in that time period and in that culture because God's sending a clear message to them specifically. Right. I am God of this land. I am real. And the king of Assyria is not the authority yeah. here. And it, what a spiritually different mindset too to think that if the king has authority over the wilderness, right? Right. And he's not, <clears throat> he doesn't have authority in this wilderness. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have authority. This in, is my wilderness. Exactly. So I choose who has authority here. I choose who lives here. You can live here, yeah. but acknowledge whose land this is, is essentially the message. Yeah, it's really interesting. Different way of looking at the world. Completely, yes. Completely different way. Yes. We have a very, um, uh, you know, simplistic, just materialistic way of looking at things. Oh, it's just, that's just nature, right? Yep. Not looking at nature as symbols, as if, the line is a symbol of something greater than itself, <coughs> right? Excuse me. Anyways, it's interesting. It is. Okay, so question for you now. Yes, I'm going to turn the it. tables. I've been All talking right. a lot. So okay, sure, sure. Time to turn the tables right, here. Sure. I'm not long. Okay, I have a Bible question for you from 2 Kings chapter 20. Right. Why would God let Hezekiah know that he was going to die and then subsequently save Hezekiah? Right. Why not just save Hezekiah and let him know, hey, Hezekiah, I saved you. Like, why would right. God, <clears throat> again, this, this account is recorded in 2 Kings 20. Yeah. Why do you think God would do that? We need to discuss this. Okay. Um, I'm going to go on the assumption that it's also not mentioned for this reason why in 2 Kings 20. Because I know that when he prays and he asks God, God extends his life 15 years. Yes. Right. So the question is, yeah, why didn't God just do that? Like, hey, listen, I'm going to extend your life. Mm -hmm. Well, bam, everything's good. Don't you worry, Hezekiah. You've been a pretty good king. Um, one thing's for sure is that there's different ways of looking at this. For one, the nature of sin itself. Like, everyone's going to die. This is something that just comes to part of life. So his time is essentially coming for him. And... God is content with him basically dying. Yep. But then Hezekiah's like, no, I, I can't. And I'm, from what I recall, God's like, basically like, okay, I'm going to send your life, but then you're, like, other things will happen in your life that you basically don't want to see. Right. Right. If I recall that correctly. Um, so God basically had mercy on Hezekiah. Yeah. Right. And... I don't think that this is a thing where, oh, why didn't God just save him? Like, hey, well, I think that we go through trials and, and tribulations, and that's just part of life. Yep. Um, and so I don't think that this is a, and it was kind of weird, but like, why, why does God just always, you know, you can apply that to anything. Like, why does it, why does God just heal you and be like, hey, and let you know God did this? That's one way he could do things, but it's not how he always does things. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's kind of like a weird thing to, to pit how he does things against how he does things, right? It's God, God could do that. He works through a prophet and be like, hey, because you did this, he does that in judgment. Mm -hmm. He goes, oh, because you did this, like with uh, uh, David and, and Bathsheba, when he, when he killed Uriah, when David kills Uriah, Nathan comes in and tells him a story. Yeah. So he does have a post-fact, because you did that, right? And you, right, this is what's going to happen. So he does give like, I guess, um, retrospective consequences for things. 
but and he could give retrospective healing like hey i healed you and the prophet could let him know um but it's also you don't you're not there's no trial and go through you don't actually experience your suffering and anything like or, or anything like that so there'd be no um understanding behind it right and i i, I don't think it like if you really kick that bucket down the road too far, it really gets there. Well, why did God, you know, have suffering at all? And why does God? Yeah. It, it gets down to those kind of questions. And I, I just don't think that that's very practical. But yeah, yeah. and we we see that God, uh, like here, there's sp- some specific things that I want to get into, but also just this idea that God wants us to participate in our lives with Him. Right. It's not just that we've completely yielded everything to God, we still have free will. We we should be following God with our free will. That's not what I'm saying. I we we definitely should be following God with our free will and 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 actively choosing to make God our Lord, the one that we get our morality from, the one that we get our direction from, all of that. But God wants our active participation. And I think we see that yeah. here with Hezekiah. And I think your point is well taken too that <clears throat> God doesn't speak for nothing. Right. That when he speaks, he when he puts us through a trial specifically, there is a reason for it. There is a purpose for it. There's something that he's trying to teach. There's something that he's trying to draw out. And here with Hezekiah, it's very clear that there is a that that there is a point that he's trying to draw out for Hezekiah. So Hezekiah is about to go through the Assyrian invasion. Right. And God has already spoken through his prophets that Jerusalem is going to fall. It's going to be killed. It's going to die. Right. There is an end. There is a judgment that's coming. Likewise, God sends Isaiah before the Assyrian invasion to Hezekiah and says, you're going to die. Right. And Hezekiah cries out to God, just as he spent his entire reign so far repenting on behalf of Jerusalem and the kingdom and trying to turn it around, getting rid of idol worship, celebrating Passover, trying to get the the spiritual life of Jerusalem and southern Judah back so that God will favor he, likewise, in his own life, he gets this death sentence and he turns around and cries out to God, look at my life, look at how I, please honor me. I've tried, I want to live. And so God sends Isaiah back and says, okay, I will extend your life 15 years. Right. Just like because of Hezekiah's repentance and and um. I'm searching for the word restoration of of the spiritual life of Judah, Jerusalem was also going to survive. But like Hezekiah, it's going to be by the skin of his teeth. Hezekiah got boils. Hezekiah looked like he was going to die. He got really sick Mm. before he got better. Judah was going to get almost completely killed before it was turned over. Um, And 2 Kings 20 brings this out. Um, verse five says this, it, this is God giving Isaiah a me- the message for Hezekiah. It says this, go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will heal you. 
On the third day from now, you will go up to the temple of the Lord. I will add 15 years to your life and I will deliver you and this city from the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my sake and for the sake of my servant, David. So it's paired there. So Hezekiah is learning he ends up getting a sign that he is going to be healthy again. But his very the very restoration of his health is a sign that he's going to need to lean on, I'm sure, that Jerusalem will also be saved because it's going to be a really rough go for him during right. the invasion of Sennacherib. Right. So we see it like there's so many elements going on here where God is allowing this trial to build Hezekiah's faith and his awareness of how God works, simultaneously giving Hezekiah a promise that he can look back to when Jerusalem is besieged. Yes. Right? When it looks like the writing's on the wall and he's going to die and everyone who's leaning on him as king is going to die, his whole family, all these people, it looks like they're going to die. He can look back and go, yeah, but God miraculously saved my life and promised me that he would miraculously save the Jerusalem. Yes. So God is building Hezekiah's testimony for a purpose. And I, and I believe that this is prescriptive. I, I think that God allows us to go through trials to build testimony. We look at the apostles teaching on this, how perseverance uh, grows character and all these good things. Yes in us so that it you know we become better followers of God because we have these testimonies of overcoming difficult things yes by the power of God yes and it's part of the sanctifying process yeah um and to say that that's not what to say that's not necessary kind of flies in the face of how reality works to be honest yes we because are supposed to struggle that, that's right there's, there's a struggle <laughs> in this life but the point is that God's going to help you overcome those struggles yes and those sufferings and yes. those trials um, but yeah, and what's, inter what's interesting too about uh, his sickness being a type uh, is that God gave a, it was almost like a prophetic type. It was, a typology is a prophecy that's nonverbal. So uh, in here, what you're saying is that his sickness was actually a type of what was to come, of what was to come for Jerusalem sickness, yes. right? Yes. Uh, an invading force, an invading virus comes in, infects his body and is, and is besieging him. Boil mm -hmm. specifically in this case, which is external, right? Mm -hmm. And he comes across very sick. And then ultimately, though, he's restored and just mm -hmm. like Jerusalem is restored. Now, I think that's really interesting. And I think that's interesting, too, is that that's how God can work in people's personal lives. Absolutely. Is that he gives you a type of something to hold on to. Yep. It's a form of knowledge to kind of get you through the the times of trials and suffering. Yep. Um, and you know that that, you know, take Job. The whole point of Job is that... He knew God's character, despite his, you know he was been, at times being confused. He was mm -hmm. still clinging to and steadfast. And no, God is good. I will not curse God, even though that's what Satan wanted him to do. Mm -hmm. And he remained steadfast in that. So in that perseverance, and through that perseverance, he then gets to see God with his own eyes at the very end, right? Um, and so it's like that same principle, where it's like God is refining you, even though through this suffering and through the trials. God's using that uh, to make you good. Because as humans, you know, Jesus says this, you're evil. He just plainly says it. You being evil. Yeah, we're evil. So God's trying to make us good. And the question is, why is God making us good? And that's the, what we need to look at this from. It's like, why is God refining us completely? 
uh, in this world? What does that mean for the next world? Why does he need to refine us in this world, in this setting? Um, so it, it does tell you about something, especially in the context of Satan falling. I'm getting really off topic. But the point here <laughs> I'm trying to make is the necessity of perseverance, like you were saying, the necessity of God being your anchor in times of trial and suffering, those things, and leaning on the knowledge and the work God has done in your life in order to come out on top, obviously because of God, not because you came out on top, right? That is so important. Yeah. And you, you can't make that not necessary. Yes. In my mind, I, it's clearly necessary for life. And I think that uh, anyone who says sanctification isn't necessary, I think is off the rock. Well, and, and it, no one likes to be in pain. Right. No one likes to be constantly in trials and things like that. But there is, there like, no one wants to suffer. I understand that. And I think that we've been, because of how easy life is in the West, at least physically, um, we've just become more and more spoiled when we talk about that. And I think it's really amplified um, poor teaching in the church. Um uh, teaching like the prosperity gospel, teaching like we should always, God, God's desire is to always heal us from everything right away. Any sort of sickness, any sort of trial is a bad thing. That's just not biblical. We we heard a great sermon a couple weeks ago on James chapter five, the perseverance and suffering where, where yes. James is really encouraging people persevering is good. We count it blessed. Like we can't, we count people blessed who have persevered through suffering because they have experienced God's compassion and God's mercy. God does restore joy. He brings hope. He is hope and love and joy and all of these great things. But we become better as Christians as God brings us through specific right. trials. So yes, there is healing in God. Yes, there is blessing in God. But so much of that uh, is for the next life. This isn't all that there is, right? We're in many ways, we are persevering through this life now to receive the fulfillment of our faith on the other side in the, in heaven and then in the new heavens and the new earth when we are in the presence of God. So. Yeah, I think that ties in with yeah. your Hezekiah's suffering. Yeah, it's quite good. All right. So okay. another question for you. Okay, Second sure. Kings 21 right. this time, next Hit chapter. Me. So this is the what you were kind of talking about before. Oh, right, right, right. If okay. Hezekiah was such a good king, because he was, yeah. then how could his son Manasseh have turned out so incredibly right. evil? Yeah. Uh. And Manasseh repents, right? If I recall. Eventually. Yeah, now, eventually, Second Kings doesn't talk about the repentance, but Chronicles not, I, does talk I, about right. the repentance. Right. Okay. So, but for most of his yes, reign, he was evil. He's and, not just evil, so evil. So it's yeah, that, I, yeah. Okay. So again, we but we're talking these. like sacrificing children and killing the yes, prophets and like right. bad. Okay. So, a couple things. One, David's on Absalom turned out to be evil. Samuel's son turned out to be evil. Right. right? Gideon, although he had flawed. I mean, I feel like to a lesser degree, but yes. Okay, Gideon, okay, so Gideon would be like on the low sense of, mm. of like having. But, I mean, all of those guys on a low sense compared to Manasseh. Okay. Well, I mean, if we're I talking mean, levels, I'm just simply they're saying bad. that Gideon, David, yes. Samuel, go down the list. Yes. Like whether you're a judge, a king, or, or a prophet, or a priest, right, with the Eli. Uh, Kids just their kids are becoming evil, and it, that's what I was saying. It's like it's really interesting. Everyone makes their own choices. Everyone makes their own choices, and yeah. it's like there's this pattern where it's like, and as much as I want to be like, well, 
you know, was Samuel hanging out with his kids? Was he always in the temple, never with his child? Was it mm-hmm. just was it just like the wife's job to take care of the children? Or like, outsource a lot of kings. He wasn't a king, but a lot of kings outsourced the raising their children. Right. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know the full extent by which these people are raising their children. So I can't really chime in to be like, oh, well, this is why. Or like, well, it would have been better if you did this. There, yeah, but it I seems mean, like, like I said, it doesn't matter what office you're holding. It just seems like sometimes kids just run run astray. And this is at a time period before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that that's a big factor because there's no restrainer. or There's no... Uh, um, uh, comforter or, or advocate there to, to help you through times mm-hmm. uh, of trouble that's within you um, or something that that can hold your conscience culpable. culpable. Um, it's much more easy to be uh, comparable in how you make decisions. Like, well, if they're doing it, I'm going to do it because it's benefiting them. Because um, survival was, you know, compared from New Testament to Old Testament, it was about survival because it's about carrying on the genealogy. Mm-hmm. So a huge part of survival, survival was a huge part of it yeah. because of the genealogical line. But when now Christ is born, it's like, well, the genealogy stops. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, but now it's not about survival. Now it's about spiritual survival. Therefore, you have to self-sacrifice your life. That's a completely different kind of way of looking at life mm-hmm. uh, in, in a large part. Uh, not to say that you wouldn't self-sacrifice for your kids back then, but of course it was about keeping your uh, prodigy alive. It was more mm-hmm. so about survival as opposed to it is in the New Testament. So it's different different dichotomy, different settings there. Um, so why would Manasseh turn evil? You know, uh, praise God that he repents at some point in his life because that yeah. does say something. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't think that there's a clean cut answer, you know, oh, I to think, this. Oh, I think there is. I think there is. Oh, I've thought oh, you, about oh, this in the hist- a lot. In the, in, in, okay, so okay, so I'm I mean at it. Manasseh specifically. Okay, yeah. okay. So I right. think I think Manasseh specifically. We've got some good human reasons, but I agree with like the concept of the overarching concept. Overarching. Right. Why do the Why do the children of great men and women turn out bad right. a lot of times? And I think a lot of it has to do with our poor decisions. Like a yeah. big portion of it is like when parents mess up, a child sees it. And if you don't own up to it, mm-hmm. if you're not, if you're just going to buck down and be like, oh, I wasn't wrong, mm-hmm. a child's going to be like, well, I don't want that. Mm-hmm. And, but then at the same time, it's not like, okay, that sounds right. But then at the same time, remember, we're also evil. So we, we can twist that. Mm-hmm. We can take that justice that we have and make it peculiar mm-hmm. and then twist it in a way that's like, okay, well, that's wrong. I'm going to do what I think is right. So our biggest, our biggest responsibility as parents is to instill in our children an understanding of who God is and what that means for them. Right. It's like they're the first people that we get to explain the kingdom of God to, explain our purpose in life to. And they're the ones who are going to know if we're telling the truth or not because they're, they see us every day. Yeah. They see us in our bad times. They see us in our good times. They see how we respond to our own sin. They see how we respond to other people behind closed doors, what we're talking about, how we're right. living. So it is a it is our job as parents to to properly to, to give a flavor of who God is to our children, right. and and that's a like our our oldest son is five, 
this is something we are still learning about. Yeah. I am not. I am not on a high horse here. I take this. We take this task really seriously, right. and every child is different in in the way that they're going to understand that and the different propensities towards a sin that they're going to have or they have different ways of understanding so it's a challenge yeah it is it's a it's a it's a challenge you have to pay attention you have to pray yeah learning the power of prayer we are as parents if we're just going to be really honest and open here this is a tough thing and there's not there's not i think a formula that you follow other than being honest with God and in your faith and with your right. children and purposefully praying for them, with them, trying to model a real imperfect life as a Christian. That's growing to perfection and yes. through Christ. So and being encouraging to them and and, right. and showing them, you know, through the this is a difficult life. But through these difficult things, there is joy, there is hope, right. it is worth it. All of those good things. Right, right, right. No, I think that's good. Yeah, yeah. But I'd like to hear what the specific reason. Oh, why. I've thought about this a lot. Okay, go ahead. I love Hezekiah. I love some good crossover history because okay. you can read, you can read Sennacherib's records, right? You can see Sennacherib boasting about. He mentions Hezekiah by name in his records, right? I I, I uh, trapped Hezekiah like a bird in a cage in Jerusalem, and then he actually commissioned. If you visit the British, uh, yeah, if you visit the British Museum today, you can see the Lachish reliefs, which is Lachish was the second uh, most fortified city uh, in Judah, and the Bible actually tells us that Sennacherib took over Lachish and then. That was his base that he was sending messengers out to Hezekiah in Jerusalem from the city of Lachish. Uh, and so you can look at an artist's rendition of the Battle of Lachish in the British Museum if you visit. I just love that. I love this time period. Right. It's so interesting. There's so much history. There's so many um, archaeological remains from this time period. So I've thought about this a lot. Hezekiah spent his entire kingship, his entire life completely revamping the spirituality of Judah. So he's tearing down high places. He's renovating the temple. He spent his life doing this. He allied himself with the prophet of God, Isaiah. Did everything that Isaiah said. And what happens? We tend to see Hezekiah's life as a great victory, but in the physical world, in human reality, it pretty much sucked because he spent his entire life worshiping God and the entire kingdom of Judah fell except for Jerusalem. Every single fortified city that Hezekiah built up was taken by Sennacherib, and only Jerusalem was spared. And Jerusalem became a vassal to Assyria. So though Jerusalem was spared and there was still technically a kingdom of Judah, they weren't free. God let them escape by the skin of their teeth. He withheld the judgment 
in full that was coming, which was the destruction of Jerusalem. So then Hezekiah dies. And Manasseh's like, well, where did that get you, dad? Because now I am king of what? The city of Jerusalem and paying yearly tribute to Assyria? Right. So what does Manasseh decide to do? The exact opposite of Hezekiah. I feel like it seems like Manasseh was taking a very practical view on this where he goes, okay, I can serve God and this is my kingdom. Or I can go the opposite of my dad and worship all the gods and get all the spiritual power and rebel against Assyria and see if we can get this thing back. Right. Because it seems to me we had the entire kingdom until dad stopped worshiping all those gods. Then we lost the entire kingdom. Right, right, right. So Manasseh goes the opposite. He builds all the altars. He sacrifices his children. He he renovates the temple again and 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 he rebels against Assyria. And what happens? Assyria comes in and defeats Jerusalem. Doesn't destroy Jerusalem. But the Bible in Chronicles talks about how they put a ring in his nose and marched him behind the military on their way back to Assyria. And there's images, artistic renditions from ancient Assyria of kings like this, where they stripped them down. They would put a big metal ring in their nose and lead them shackled Mm. to Assyria. Manasseh has this realization that he was wrong. He's already killed prophets of God. The Bible talks about how he made the streets of Jerusalem run with innocent blood. Yeah. And he has this humbling moment where he, he, he repents. Maybe he had received an early prophecy. We're not told all that part of the right, story. Right. He repents. God elevates him in Assyria. And the Assyrian king allows Manasseh to come back to Jerusalem as a vassal king again. And Manasseh begins to follow God Right after that. So I think there's a very human reason that we can track. Yeah, that's good. For Manasseh specifically right. rebelling against God. No, it's really good also to lay it out just like in a very like human way where it's like, you, this is what you see. And I think if you see that, like even as a kid today, you see your parents like I was saying, doing, making like decisions that don't make any sense, yeah. that, that aren't advantageous, <clears throat> that don't help, they're not beneficial. You're like, why are you doing that? Yep. Right? Or even if they appear contradictory. Yeah. That God says he, he he loves you, but then you're, you know, yep. this is what's happening. And it's like. And you think all the people, like all the people that Hezekiah was ruling over, they probably weren't, there was probably a huge faction of them that were not happy. Yeah. That Hezekiah took away their worship practices. Yeah. And then he lost the kingdom. Yeah. So what are they going to tell King Manasseh? Like, so he's got the pressure of, all right, my dad did this and it didn't work. And then he also has the, the the people who are unsettled, maybe even threatening, hey, we don't need to accept you as king, That's buddy. Right. Yeah. Like, we want more yeah. than this. So he's got a lot of, what would you do yeah. in that situation? Would you risk losing the kingdom and just stay the course? Or would you flip it? And Isaiah, the prophet, I mean, if, if Jewish tradition is correct, then Manasseh was responsible for murdering Isaiah. Yeah. So Isaiah, like the prophets of God were still speaking to Manasseh. So he he chose against yeah. the prophets so, of and God. And it's interesting to think about. But it's interesting, so, like what would you do? Yeah. And to think about Oof. his repentance, 
is the salvation process. And he supposedly sawed Isaiah in half. Yep. So you think about that. He went hardcore. Hardcore. The, the other way. Yeah, that's right. Anyway. Anyway, that's interesting. Interesting. Well, I, I have a question for you. All right. Yeah, let's talk about it. All right. It. What is so, it? So uh, for it's a viewer question by mm -hmm. Belinda. Yep. Okay. So as we begin studying in 1 Samuel, which we're way past, but yes. hey, it's related. I noticed that's a short genealogical note in 1 Samuel 1.1. 1, 1, Elkanah is said to be from the mountains of Ephraim. Yeah. However, in 1 Chronicles 6, 16 to 23, the longer gene genealogical record indicates that Elkanah was a Levite, which is correct. Yes. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Both, both are correct is my short answer. It is confusing in the English for sure. Um, so in 1 Chronicles 6, uh, the so Elkanah was Samuel's father. So the prophet and judge Samuel. Excuse me. <coughs> Bless you. Goodness. Um, <clears throat> he was a Levite. He was living in the land of Ephraim. And in the Hebrew, in 1 Samuel, he's called an Ephraimite which is very close to an Ephraimite, but an Ephraimite would be like a clan name within a tribe. Uh, and remember that the, the tribe of Levi didn't actually inherit a land like the other tribes. They inherited cities within other tribal lands. So you'd have a city of Levites and a town of Levites in the land of Ephraim, in the land of Manasseh, in the land of Judah but they didn't all stay within those towns as well. They moved out and and it, for all intents and purposes, they kind of lived just scattered among the tribes of Israel. So Samuel's family seemed to have been Levites, but they were Levites who lived in the territory of the tribe of Ephraim. So that's how 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles go together. Good. Yeah. That's great. Yes. I All think right. That was the last question. Are you too. ready for the big question? I am ready. All right. Shoot. <clears throat> so along the veins of failure. Okay. How does God want us to deal with failure as Christians? Because these portions of scripture that we've been looking at, of course, they deal with great failures, right? Yeah. Israel falls as a nation. Kings of Judah become evil, like Manasseh. Judah ends up falling to Babylon. Is God teaching us something by all of this failure? What can we learn about how God wants us right. to deal with failure? Okay, well, there's, there's a couple of things that, I, that are rolling through my mind. Um, there's like obviously failing as a parent. There's like parental failures. Yeah. There's moral failures. Yep. Right? Uh, there's um, uh, economic failures. Like there's mm -hmm. different kinds of failures you have. So I, I, the one thing about failing is, is that when we think about in a failing and success format, oh, you're successful. Oh, you failed. Yeah, it kind of presents itself like it's a checklist of, of um, tasks to complete. In other words, like, oh, you finished all the tasks, therefore you, you succeeded. Or you accomplished what you had to do. Right. Uh, but, oh, you, you missed this one task, therefore you failed. And I think looking at life like success and failure is just really unhealthy. Um, now, I'm going to kind of, kind of come about this in a roundabout way. Because I think in Christ, the principle is that you're victors in Christ. Christ has already accomplished it. You're, there's victory in Christ mm -hmm. immediately. 
Um, so to look at it like there's failures, that you're failing all the time, I think would be the, the wrong perspective from a Christian perspective because it's more like if you're if you have faith and you have the, the, the faith working through love, which is what Christ desires in us, faith working through love, and that's a seed that's planted, the word of God is a seed and planted, as James says, and it grows within you. Well, there's, as we said earlier, there's trials and tribulations. There's the tree growing within you. There will be a spiritual winter. Mm-hmm. The leaves might wither a bit, right? There will be things, but it doesn't mean that you don't have no faith. There's still a tree. So you might go through rough times. You might feel like that there's, that you have nothing, but um, it's not means you're failing at the same time, because if you look at life like it's a progress, like you're progressively going through uh, as Christ is growing you, then that's not failing. It's just, it's just, this is the, this is what happens when you go through trials and your need to rest on God to come through the winter. So then spring can come, right? So I think that to look at it like, off the cuff, to look at it like failing and success, if you have Christ, you've already succeeded. And that's the principle that you hang on to. Um, at the same time, I, I don't want to be dismissive of this concept of, maybe I'm being a little bit too technical about, you know, oh, about failure and success, but because when you look at the word stumble, when people stumble, right, that implies falling. We know Adam and Eve fell. That's the the fall is what we call it. So the idea of falling implies falling away from grace, as as Paul calls it. This idea is you've fallen, like you're 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 you fall into the pit of some kind. Um, but and stumbling implies that process. But you, but when you stumble, you can pick yourself back up. So it's okay to stumble in a concept because you have repentance. So I guess what I'm saying is, is that when it comes to failing, there's an easy, I shouldn't call it easy because repentance is also difficult. But I'm, I guess what I'm saying is it's like, it's as simple in principle is that is that you can repent and get back on the wagon, get back on the horse. Um, yeah. So I, I don't look at it as, as, as a failure that, you, that there is no more success after that. Um, it's more so just like, you will go through this life. There will be stumbling, stumbling blocks. Avoid the stumbling blocks. If you do stumble, you must repent. Get right with the Lord and have God sanctify you so that you're no longer stumbling is, is the idea. Um, so I think that in a, in a long-winded way, the Christian perspective is how does God want us to deal with, how to deal with failure? It's not to look at our lives like they're failing. It is to look at our lives like they're being grown through Christ progressively they're being sanctified progressively. Mm-hmm. And that means they're being refined into a good, and being conformed to the image of Christ progressively, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that you are going to become good, that is God's plan for you. But also that means there's some things you're not aware about along the way. To look at it like success and failure, depends how you see things. Right? Yeah, it really right. does, because so, so, I don't have a problem with looking at it like I failed. Well, like, that's what I was kind of saying. Because I don't like, mean like, I oh, I failed and that's it forever. Okay. Okay. Right. I'm dead. Because the... like I don't have a problem with that. But I I because I I see danger in the opposite way. I see danger with people going. Well, it's not really a failure. I'm just a human and oh. I'm not perfect. Like, yeah, but well, you're called well, okay, to be cause, perfect. Cause, you're called to be to add to that to to live by the spirit oh. and not by the flesh. So there is a de- there are definite acts like immoral acts that are of the flesh that we are not That's allowed moral to yes. do. Fair. And, okay. And, so. and, 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 I, and I think a huge part of our problem is just accepting every, this is the way God made me and this is just okay. what it is. And yeah, right. This, I just have propensities towards sin and it's not my fault. 
yes, you have propensities towards sin, but that doesn't mean that you just get to sin. Oh, yeah, you, you okay. just get to that. Fair. That that is categorically a moral failure that you need to learn from and move on. Okay. Yes. Here's what from. I'll say: the concept of stumbling is a failure. Yes. If you stumble, even if you didn't fall, it's a failure to some extent. If you're looking <clears> in those terms, that's fair. Because I am looking. I was looking at success and failure kind of like a businessman. Well, our business failed. It's like okay, well. No, it's okay. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so I was kind not, of looking at it it's like... It's not overall your life has failure. failed. That's impossible. Okay, we right. live by the righteousness of Christ, okay? Right. We are it's, saved by the righteousness of Christ. You can have a failed Not task. by our own. So, so okay. if I sin, Fair. that doesn't mean that I've lost my place in heaven. It means I need to deal with the sin. Right. I need to deal with the sin. I need to repent. Like, what would have happened if northern Israel would have listened to the prophets, repented, and served God? They would still exist. They never would have fallen to the Assyrian Empire. Uh, same with Judah. When they get called out on their sin, when they realize that they sin, in their case, it was going against the covenant of God, covenant of God that they had specifically with him in very obvious ways. They got called out on it. They needed to repent, which means stop doing it, ask for forgiveness, and do something else. Right. Follow God, follow the covenant, they would not have been judged in the way that they were. Right. And in a similar way, we are in we are under a different covenant, a new covenant, a covenant of Christ. We are still called as Christians. We are expected. We have a moral obligation to follow Christ with our lives. Our old self, you know, when we look at Ephesians, Ephesians talks about how we once lived like we didn't know God. We once lived like the world, but now we are called to live according to the Spirit of God, to live in a different way. So what happens when we have moral failures? Same concept with ancient Israel. We acknowledge the sin. We confess the sin. That's the part of that acknowledging. Repent of the sin, so ask for God's forgiveness, and intentionally live in a different way asking God for his help. So when we fail, if we ignore the failure, it, like if we ignore the sin, we're just going to keep sinning in that same way. But it provides a great opportunity for us when we keep falling into a certain sin to feel the sting of that, to feel the consequences of it, to remember, to really sit in that failure for a little bit, not to beat ourselves up, but to remember what it feels like right. to be yeah. in that. Yeah. When you, yes. See what I'm saying? No, I know what? exactly. What you're I know. I, I kind of got like reformulating. No, now. no, it's good because I, I, I was kind of looking at it more like a bit, like once the business fails, the business is done and that's about it. And that's kind of like a more of like an ultimate fail, like a salvation failure kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's not what but, I'm talking but, about. No, I yeah. hear what you're saying. Practically speaking, yeah, of course there's micro failures, there's failures in life that you mess up with, and that's fine. And to look at, oh, okay, well, you, you played a game, you failed to win, but you succeeded in winning, and it's like, okay, that's life. And I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I'm going to think about what spiritually, though, was like when God calls you to persevere, right? And you mm-hmm. don't persevere, that would be a failure, mm-hmm. right? But to look at it like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to persevere in Christ. And if you do stumble, well, you succeed... You correct the failure by um, repenting and getting back on the horse, I guess is what I'm saying, so that it's no longer a failure and God doesn't mm-hmm. look at it like it is a failure. You see what I'm saying? So it's no longer a fail because God has blotted out your sins. 
So and it's it, as white as snow is the concept. So the, my point here in saying that is that, yes, on an ontological level, I guess is what I was saying, is that there won't be really failures because you're growing in Christ and growing and God's correcting you along the way. Sure. And he's blotting out those, those sins that you're asking repentance for. So that's kind of the perspective I was looking at it from. But yeah, but of course, on, on a, a macro level, of course, you got to recognize your, 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 your uh, micro level, sorry, your, your, your personal failures, your moral failures, like with David and his son Absalom, that was more, Bathsheba, it was a moral failure, right? Yeah, All a, these, a so, lot of moral failures. So how does God want to deal with those, those other moral failures? Well, we talked about a big time, perseverance sanctification the idea is like okay you're going to have these in life repentance repentance but you shouldn't linger in these things mm -hmm. and you shouldn't indulge in these things um you have to push forward towards what's good it's a reason why god's doing it and and you know that's a huge philosophical theological discussion why does god want us to be sanctified why does god want us to be refined here like that's a big one um, it is i and 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 if people are looking for something to read on, on what we're talking about, I would really encourage you to read Ephesians 4. Right. Ephesians 4 talks about godly living. It's pretty right. succinct yeah, when it talks good. about like the, the ways of darkness versus the ways of light. Right. Ephesians is really good for that because right. Paul is trying to encourage the Ephesians in living a godly life. I'm going to read to you from the next chapter, actually, Ephesians 5, verses 8 to 11. Um, he says this, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Right. Um, and, it, and it continues on. So, and, if you, yeah. And I think that's good. And to add to that, it's like this other, even just practically, Let's take Manasseh. You, you brought up astutely um, how Manasseh is just looking at the practical life of Hezekiah's life, which is disaster. And he's like, I don't want any part of this. Yeah. Um, there's an element of presumptuousness that comes with looking at someone else's failures. So in other words, there's looking, he is, uh, Manasseh says his father's life, what you, in the way you described it, um, very practically, economically, you know, as far as who could, someone could run a kingdom, mm -hmm. right? Though not really morally, of course. He just looked at it from a human perspective. Mm -hmm. This doesn't benefit me or other people, right? Mm -hmm. And clearly it's like it's more so him because he's he's got no kingdom to rule, right? It seems much more selfish, of course, in his ambition. Um, but it goes to show you the level of presumption because he thinks he has it all figured out to move forward in this. Yeah. Right? He didn't believe that God, he didn't believe in the strength of God. That's right. Because what he saw immediately in front of him seemed to indicate that God was too weak to save all of Judah. That's right. And he didn't. But what he, what he did, what he chose not to understand or what he failed to understand was the why. Right. The why it was judgment. That's like right. It was actually God's mercy that Jerusalem survived, not God's weakness. It was that, actually that, God's, he was yes. restraining. And, and I think that, okay, right, right there, mercy and justice, right? This idea, a very um, morally deftone people, you could say, won't see mercy as, as a necessity. They'll just see justice. They'll just see things need to be in proper or in justice, like as like a scale, like perfectly balanced, mm -hmm. um, and that's not right. 
because without mercy, justice, you know, we almost call it legalism today, but what is what is justice? It's it's just basically it becomes completely immoral and it loses the whole essence of what it means to be justice. Like justice could be balancing your budget. Okay. Right. Uh, And that means some people might have to suffer so that you don't in your budget. So it's like, there's no anchor to the justice mercy. And as James talks about mercy, try to triumph over judgment. Mercy is necessary for justice to have any uh, resolution whatsoever. But I know we're kind of getting off topic there, but, um, when it comes to failing, uh, Manasseh really is the typification of what it means to to uh, to realize that you presume too much. You presumed what you thought you knew what you did not know. Yeah, and he was wrong. Exactly. Yep. And I think that. Um, but notice, but, th- when but he, that's a big portion of failure. But notice when he acknowledged that he was wrong, what happened? Yes, he acknowledged that he was wrong. He repented, and even Manasseh, who was guilty of the greatest evil, yeah. Bible talks about how he was guilty of the greatest evil, so evil that Jerusalem would be judged right pretty quickly after right. his reign. Nothing could stop it at that point. He was still restored, and yes. God accepted him, and he began to live for God. That's right, which is. Amazing. Yes. Yeah, and I yeah, and just, just, I think the last note here that's in my mind is that that presumptuousness is what leads to failure in the first that leads to the mm-hmm. moral failures is that you think you know but you don't know, mm-hmm. and honestly, that's just like the culture we live in. It's just like that's it. But um, I think that that it's like if you if you want to be successful, and this is what God says, you be humble. I'll yeah. elevate those who are humble, right? Yeah. And I'll let those fall who are who are arrogant. So I think that when it comes to that, humility is the counter to failure. Mm-hmm. Live a content life. If you're worried about economic, live a con- God calls you to live a content life, yeah. not to be overindulgent in money or these different things. Like so, it's one of those things. There is no like when you're truly following Christ, there is no failure when you're truly following Christ. And I, I think that in in the moral sense. Um, but you're just not looking at those terms. Anyway, sorry, but that's my... Yeah, I think I think when you boil it all down, another way to say it is when we live for ourselves, we fail. Yes. <laughs> that, we're we're yeah. going to fail. That's right. Uh, when we live for God, it's a different story. So we need to deal with our failures and push forward in, in following God. So acknowledging moral failures, repenting of moral failures, acknowledging God as the source of true morality rather than our own ideas or our cultural ideas or anything like that. So let's push on towards following God. And, and I'm really gonna try to let that, like that, these, that thought at least marinate in in my life this week as we move forward and continue reading. If you have any comments or questions, pop them down below. And until next week, happy reading, happy studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.